All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Jared, and this is Biblically Speaking's very first podcast. And if you happen to be watching this on YouTube, you will see that I am not alone. My good friend Brian Haynes is with us today, and he's going to be with us, I guess, every week. I talked to him yesterday, and he said he'd be down for taking on a co-host spot with me, so you're not just listening to my talking head. I know you guys are used to that in my videos and shorts and things like that, but Brian is a officially part of the Biblically Speaking family. He's done a couple of episodes with me and some other things. We did some stuff on Revelation a while back. Brian's just a glutton for punishment, I guess. But how you doing today, buddy? Well, if I can unmute my microphone. Yeah, I'm doing great <laughs> today. Glad, to, uh, glad to, get to be here. I've always said I get to play Ed McMahon to your, your uh, late night host there, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. I'm looking forward to doing this on, a, on just a weekly basis. And we've been talking about all the different things we want to cover, from from Bible topics to even how some of some of what's going on in culture and how that affects Christians. We were brainstorming yesterday morning at coffee, and we came up with 15 solid ideas just within span of like five or six minutes. And one of the things that I wanted to do for our inaugural episode, and if you've been following the channel, you know I haven't put out a long-form video in a few weeks because I've been focusing on shorts. And hey, I'm happy to say our subscribership has tripled in the last few weeks because of that. Now, we are going to start doing more long-form content, but one of the the pieces that I've been doing a lot on recently is is Jesus God? Did Jesus really say he was God? And I have a, I have a great story that starts with a Gnostic, a Muslim and an agnostic come up to a Christian. Now, you may think that's a joke, but that actually describes the comment feed that I had on one of one of my shorts a few weeks ago, where I had three different people wanting to deny the divinity of Jesus, but they were all sort of expressing the goodness of Jesus. That's something that we run into as Christians in the modern era. People have a really hard time accepting that Jesus is God. I mean, they love the idea of baby Jesus in a manger, they love the idea of Jesus being a good man that taught us to love each other. They'll even talk about Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, eating with the sinners and the tax collectors and things like that to, to show how loving and accepting Jesus was. But we really don't get to the essence of Jesus. And I don't think you can understand who Jesus is without understanding that that he really did claim that he was God when he was walking on the earth, didn't he? It's really a remarkable, important thing. Of course, some of the thinking that people have is that they're pre-programmed to deny it. You, you mentioned right. the Muslim who's going to, in his doctrine and his theology, have to believe that Jesus couldn't have been the son of God. Jesus was just one more in a series of prophets leading up to the ultimate prophet, Muhammad. But on the other side, there's also that sense where the identity of Jesus being God and man is really confusing. It's really hard to clearly understand, especially since there's these necessary contradictions. And, and let's use the word contradiction because I think it fits nicely okay. here. God says, God is not a man, but Jesus is a man. God says, you can't tempt me. And yet Jesus is tempted. And, and there's all these things where we're saying, how do we, how do we put these things together? And of course, the answer really is the only way those things can be brought together is that Jesus was God becoming flesh and that God is more of a personality than we appreciate or understand that we really can't truly appreciate the idea of the identity of God when we're really just trying to to apply to God our own single-mindedness. And so there's yeah, some of the things I think we'll talk about. There's just something to the idea. I mean, I have a finite brain. I mean, some people are going to readily agree with that statement. I have a very finite brain. I mean, you're not going to fit an infinite God into a five-pound brain. You're just not going to. That the concept of God has always been a struggle 
for man. I mean, think about how many of the Psalms David wrote where he said God is like this, and and some of them seem contradictory, where God on in one Psalm is destroying the sinners, and, and yet in, in another Psalm, he's calling them to repentance. And all of these facets of God, it, it's hard for us to get a clear picture of who God is without understanding that you're going to have to hold some ideas that have some, I use the word contradiction. I like to use the word tension, that, that like mm-hmm. stretching a rubber band to the point of, of is it going to break or not? That, that there's some tension there between this idea of, of Jesus being both God and man. We have a struggle with that. And I think it's a necessary struggle because we need to see him both as God and as man. That's one of the things that the Hebrew writer talked a lot about in Hebrews chapter two, is that the the grace of God is not just Jesus on the cross. The grace of God is the whole story of Jesus. He was with God from the very beginning, with the Father from the very beginning, and yet he puts on this form of a man so that he can learn obedience and that he can taste death and be subject to to death and be subject to pain and all of the things that we're subject to, even temptation, and yet he can show us the way forward. And it makes a statement like he makes in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It makes it mean a lot more because he actually came and walked it. Yeah, what you're saying is important because what you're saying is Jesus has to be God for this to work. And that's an important idea. And the Hebrew writer hits it a couple of ways. Probably the Hebrew writer is one of the best ones to tell us why. But but you already mentioned, the Hebrew writer tells us that one important reason that Jesus has to be God is that the concept of the true quality of compassion and mercy required Jesus to be tempted in all ways as we are, so that he could be a compassionate high priest, that he could look at us and say, hey, I get it. In other words, because I've been there, I get it. This is the idea, first of all, the Hebrew writer kind of pushes, that Jesus has to be God in order for God to have the truest understanding of mercy, because God is offering mercy, but he's still offering judgment. He's not just saying, I'm going to wave it. So so in order to define the fine line, number one, Jesus has to be God so that he experiences it. But of course, the Hebrew writer goes on to say that Jesus also has to be God so that God can die to put away the covenants that had come before Jesus. So the second thing is, if Jesus isn't God, then, then the maker of the covenant, going back to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, all of those covenants still have a place over us, which are covenants of sin and death. And mm-hmm. the covenant of Christ hasn't it hasn't overcome them and replaced them because if right. Jesus isn't God, God, and, and this is Romans 7, where he says, hey, you can't enter a marriage without the till death you part kind of conversation. And he's going to say that a new covenant requires the death of the one who made it. So God had to die. How can God die? Again, it's a paradox, contention, as you said, I like a contradiction, God can die, but Jesus can accomplish that as a man. So so what's so incredible is that by God becoming man, a lot of things that can't happen, happen. And because Mm -hmm. those things happen, we have a plan of salvation. So if Jesus isn't God, we can't be saved, period. Utterly no way we can be saved. We're still bound under the laws of sin and death. God has no definitive qualification on mercy, not having experience. We're just ruined if Jesus wasn't Mm -hmm. God. Paul would talk about if Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, we have no hope. But again, the same statement could be made what the Hebrew writer says, that if Jesus isn't God, we have no hope. One of the statements that gets made by, and this this typically falls more less on the Gnostic side. Yeah, I, I think I still think it's funny that I actually had a debate with an honest to goodness Gnostic. I've I, it kind of relegated those to antiquity. You saw it; it was full fledged Gnostic doctrine the guy was espousing. But the 
but really on the agnostic side and the Muslim side of that debate that I was having, the debate comment exchange that I was having in that in that uh, four shorts that I did on Is Jesus God, that the one of the things that they kept affirming was that Jesus never claimed to be God. And that's that's absolutely not true. You look at his discussion in John 3, where he talks about being the light that came down from heaven, that, that he talks about being the I'm the bread of life, that he talks about being the resurrection in the life. He he uses a term that's it, that's used for God in the Old Testament when he says, I am the good shepherd. He literally says that he is the son of God and affirms to the woman at the well in John 4 that he is the Messiah, the Christ, that they knew was coming and that they had been waiting for. So you do have definite statements, but one of the pushbacks that you get from a lot of people is that, well, that's only John's gospel, and that was probably the latest gospel. But I mean, think about Peter's confession in Matthew 16. In, in Matthew, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And that, that Son of Man is a reference to Daniel and the one who was going to assume the eternal throne that God was going to seat him there, and he was going to be anointed, and and that it it was the, the prophesied one. It's another term for Messiah or Christ. And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but others still Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So you have sort of this double confession there that, that Jesus is the Christ. That's echoing that son of man statement that Jesus is definitely one of us, but that he's also descended from above, that he is God. And that's that's part of Peter's great confession in Matthew 16, and that confession is what Jesus said his church was going to be built on. Fundamentally, the church is based on the confession that Jesus is God in the flesh, doing all the things that are necessary to redeem us and buy us back from sin, correct? Yeah. One of the interesting things to think about here presents us with the idea and they say, hey, Jesus never says I'm God. It's also important for us to understand Jesus never says I am the Christ. Jesus instead in both of those statements, said, what's so important about Matthew 16, 17 is that it reveals that the, that the confession of Christ is both that we're confessing he is both the Christ and the Son of God. And that, and by, by the way, that's what John says he wrote his gospel. So you would believe he is the Christ and the Son of God, not just right. God, but also the Christ. And it's interesting because Jesus will never step up and say, I'm the Christ. And Jesus tells mm -hmm. us, John actually is where Jesus tells us why. He says, because if, if a man testifies of himself, that testimony isn't, it doesn't have a validity. This is the idea of two or three witnesses. So Jesus goes on to say, hey, the things that are going to testify me are number one, my works. Number two, the Old Testament. Number three, the Holy Spirit. Number four, John the Baptist. This is in the book of John in particular. He lists the witnesses mm -hmm. or the testimonies. Number five, the Father, who who in all the gospel accounts testifies. That's an important point for us to understand that in each of the gospel accounts, yeah. we have the testimony of the Father. from him. Number six, he does say himself at one point. And then number seven, he says the apostles will testify. And, and mm -hmm. by the way, that's going to be real important because we're going to say, hey, the Old Testament tells us Jesus is God. Hey, the miracles that Jesus did tell us he's God. Someone who says, oh, it's only the Gospel of John. And, and by the way, I will say, yeah, the Gospel of John in particular wants us to know that Jesus is God as much as he wants us to know Jesus is Christ. He does mm -hmm. want us to walk away with that understanding. Some people believe that's that's in response to Gnosticism. I think it was I think it was prophesied. I think when you go back to the Old Testament, you look at the what we call the branch prophecies. There are seven times where this special word branch is used. And and by the way, in the Old Testament, our Old Testament translators 
help us out by capitalizing the word brains. It's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unique thing that they do in the Old Testament. It's one of the few times they do it and it's not related to the word Jehovah necessarily. But there's seven branch prophecies about the branch that was going to come. And the branch is called Jehovah the branch. It's called my servant the branch. It's called behold the man the branch and the king. And so what's neat is those four things reflect the, the nature of the four gospel accounts that we have one account, Matthew, the very first words tell us it's about Jesus as a king, the record, the record, the, the story of the, of the Christ, the king, and it's all about the kingdom of heaven. Mark is all about Jesus as a servant, all the things that he does to serve. Luke is about Jesus as a man, and John's about Jesus as God. And so some see John as reactionary to the to the problems of the day. And Jared, maybe you can tell us a little more about Gnosticism, by the way, to help me understand that better. But really, I think it was prophesied that those would be the four faces of the Christ, the man, the servant, right. the God, and the king, that, that those were the things we were looking for. Yeah, Gnosticism is kind of a funny word, Brian. It, it, it's got a lot of different meanings, a lot of different doctrines are associated with it, but it's, it's generally associated with the idea that flesh and spirit are separate and and one of the primary ideas is what you do in the flesh doesn't harm your spirit. Another is that God couldn't possibly have come in the flesh because he is the spirit and things of that nature. So you have this separation. This particular person that was espousing Gnostic belief was actually teaching that, that Jesus was a man just like us and that his spirit was elevated to God, almost like the Mormon idea, that, that his spirit was elevated to God where he got this secret knowledge from heaven and then he came down and shared it with us and that he wasn't really God. And you look at John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus is the Word that became flesh. He's the life. He's the light of men. He came to his own, and his own rejected him. And all of those things that says in John 1, and his purpose was so that we could behold the glory of the Father in the form of the grace and the truth that God was trying to, to extend to us that Jesus being God, no matter what human philosophy might be, absolutely crucial to the gospel testimony. Peter just literally confessed that he was both man and God in Matthew 16. You have something similar happen in John chapter 20, where Thomas has doubted Jesus. He challenges him. Here's, here's the wounds in my hand. Here's the spear hole in my side. I don't want you to be unbelieving. And what does Thomas confess? He says, my Lord and my God. If Jesus is not God there, he should have immediately rebuked him for that. That that absolutely that, no 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 no. I mean, how many times in Scripture? I mean, you think about John in the Revelation. He falls down at the feet of an angel to worship because he's just so overwhelmed by this. And what is he told? Don't do that. I'm a messenger. I'm actually serving you, John. I came to bring you this message. This is an amazing thing. And when you stop and you think about that, Jesus allowing that to happen is absolutely the Christ. When you think about that, and you think about all of the challenges that are put to this, particularly we talked about the Muslims. The Muslims believe that, that Jesus was a prophet because they say God can't be three persons in one. But does the Bible actually support the idea that God can't be three persons in one? Is And we hear all the time, well, that's just a New Testament idea that Christians hang on to. But there are lots of Old Testament passages that deal with this idea of God being individuals in one being or that we call God. And we talked about some of those examples yesterday at coffee. So so what are some of the big ones that you think of right off the top of your head? As far as the testimonies that God was more than one person, probably yeah. probably the 
biggest one, and I say biggest because it's the most common, is the word Elohim, which is the Old Testament word that that is translated God in about 99% of the time. So when you open mm -hmm. up your Bible and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the word Elohim. And what's neat about the mm -hmm. word Elohim, the word El, E-L, is the word for God. The word mm -hmm. Elohim means God's plural. So, so what's interesting, and, and I didn't bring the statistic up in front of me, but it's used over a thousand times, I believe. So giving us to mm -hmm. say, hey, this is the biggest, is that through the entirety of the Old Testament, beginning to end, God identifies himself not as a he, but as a they, as a plurality person and more than one person. And the mm -hmm. very first things we're meeting when God makes man, let us make him in our image. That's not a mistake. Mm -hmm. That's, that's reflecting the very word God as it's used in the Bible. And that's not to say that God is polytheistic, like the pagans thought of polytheism, that you had Zeus and you had Hera and you had, you have probably mixing Roman and Greek mythology, but I can't ever keep them all straight. You had Mars and you had all of these different, now I know I am, because <laughs> I, I mixed the planet in there, but you had all of these different, different gods that disagreed with each other. That's not what you just said. They are in unison. They are singular. They're one, but they're also individual. And one of the things that I was talking about, and I picked this up, a scholar on YouTube who was talking about, he is a Hebrew scholar, and then he was actually talking with a former Muslim who had become a Christian, and they were talking about this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I, did, I didn't know this, and I had to go research it, but one of the most famous verses in the Bible is Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. But the verse that immediately precedes that is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That idea of one is the Hebrew word ihad. I think I'm saying that right, ihad. And it means all at once, or it can mean another into one, that out of many become one, kind of like e pluribus unum, if you will. It's the same word that's expressed in Genesis 2 when God gives the rules for marriage, and he says that a for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one. It's not that they stopped being two individuals, but now they are united in a way that makes them one. And they're one in purpose, they're one in essence, they're one in motive. That Ideally, there should be perfect unity in a marriage between a man and a woman. But it's the same word he had that's used there that's also used in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord is one. That is no different than what Jesus is talking about when he comes and says, look, the things I speak are not my words, they are my father's, and I do not speak of my own initiative. That he's not saying he isn't God and his father is God. He is saying that, look, my father is separate from me, but I am speaking his words. In John 1, he is called the word of God. You go back to Genesis 1, you have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the next thing that you see is the Spirit of God moving on the face of the water. So there's God in two persons right there. Then you have, if Jesus is the Word of God, all of creation is carried out by God speaking. Let there be light. So there you have the Word of God. You actually have God in three persons in Genesis 1. You just don't know to look for it until John says, hey, this Jesus I'm going to tell you about, he is the Word of God, and that nothing that was made was made without him. Everything that was made was made by him. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, not only did Jesus make everything, but Jesus is the reason it continues to exist.
without Jesus, none of what we have would continue to exist. You were talking with me about Psalm 45. How does that show that God is both singular and individual? So, so again, Jesus says, hey, the things that testify of me, when he talks about his works, his miracles would testify he was who he was, the God, the Christ. The different things that he describes testifying about him, one of them he says is the Old Testament. He says the things that Moses wrote, the things that is written before testify to my identity. So that means Moses will say things that identify Jesus as the Christ, and other mm -hmm. writers are saying things that identify Jesus as the Christ. One of the big ones we're going to talk about in a moment is Isaiah. But in Psalm 45, the sons of Korah were neat guys that David brought. As, and, and it's kind of neat that David could bring men in and they could become inspired writers. Now, by the way, I'm cheating a little bit. The Hebrew writer is the one who tells us this is about Jesus. In Hebrews 1 verses 8 and 9, he quotes this psalm and says, hey, we're talking about Jesus here. This is about Jesus. But you'll figure it out because the psalm starts off talking about this, this poem. The writers are saying, hey, we want to talk about the great king, the great, great king. And they say, this king is so great, God has blessed this king forever. And then as they're talking about this great king, in verse 6, they call this great king God. Wow, okay, we're talking about God. But then verse 7, we get one of those wonderful, can I say contradiction, paradox tension, where he says, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. Wait a second. In the verse before that, he said, you are God. And now he says, mm -hmm. but God is going to anoint you. And by the way, the word anoint is the word Christ. In Hebrew, Masach, we, we come out with the word Messiah, means anointed one. And in the Greek, the word Christ, Christos, is the word anointed one. God has anointed you with oil. I love it because he goes on to say, he starts talking about the woman that this guy is going to marry. Well, it if we're talking about Jesus, we're told to his bride will be. It's the church. So he goes on in mm -hmm. verse 10 to talk about you're going to forget your father's house and your own people. The king desires you. He's your Lord. You worship him. They'll bring gifts to you. He goes on to say that your, your sons will be the princes of the earth. I love this psalm because it clearly says this king is God, but not God. Oh, I love that language. That's my favorite language in the Bible. You're God, but not God, because God is separate from you too, and yet you are God. And he goes on mm -hmm. to say how great this king is going to be. So it's not David. Like I said, if there was a question, the Hebrew writer says, we're talking about Jesus here. But the whole point is these marvelous little indications like this. And, and, and Jesus loved to talk about these. He loves to talk about David saying this in Psalm 2 when Jesus, what, Matthew, yes. I forgot the passage, Matthew 22, he says, hey guys, who's he talking about when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who's David talking about if he was the Lord and he says he has a Lord that God talks to. And they're kind of like, Ugh. and it's, it's marvelous. Like I said, again, they don't know the answer. And the answer's right in front of them, but they don't know it. And I love those little statements. And the Psalms are full of them. These little, little statements that are marvelous. That doesn't make sense unless God could be a man at some point too to take on this role so that God and man could have a mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's interesting wording. When Peter uses that in Acts 2 in verse, at the end of verse 34, He's referring to the 110th Psalm that David, who ascended into heaven, but he, he himself says, the Lord, that's the word kiros, said to my Lord, same word, 
So these two are, David is regarding these two as the same, but they're different because the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter said, David can't be talking about himself. He has to be talking about Jesus because earlier he's referencing this prophecy that the body of your Holy One is not going to undergo decay. He goes, I can take you to where David's body is right now. I, I could yeah. show you where David is buried. And you know what? You could dig up that grave and David is still there. He's talking about someone who didn't stay in Hades. He's talking about someone who didn't undergo decay. And he says, I'm telling you, based on these two prophecies, all the house of Israel should know that God hath made both Lord and Christ. So he is the master. He's vouching for Jesus's divinity there. He's Kyros and Christ, that he's the Messiah, the anointed one. This Jesus, God is testifying through David that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And so, again, you're going back to the Psalms. You're verifying exactly what Jesus was saying about himself all along. Now, one of the passages that you mentioned, you mentioned Isaiah talking about this, and this is one that has absolutely become, in very short order, a favorite of mine. If I was going to ask you, Brian, who is the Alpha and the Omega? Where would you think to go to just off the top of your head? What passages do you think about when I say Alpha and Omega? I jumped to Revelation. And end? Revelation chapter okay, 1. You're going you're gonna to jump to Revelation. Now, Now, when John uses, or Jesus uses those terms, the Alpha and the Omega for both the Father and himself in Revelation, he's actually drawing from a passage in Isaiah 44, where he says, I am the first and the last. But I want you to see something. That's not the only place that Isaiah uses that phrase as when God is prophesying through him. In Isaiah 48, verse 12, you have to sort of keep pace with who's talking here. But it says, listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. We would immediately assume that is God the Father. That, that it, that's Yahweh speaking, that we would assume that is absolutely Alpha and Omega language, right? Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spreads out the heavens. So there's his authority. That almost sounds like the way that God speaks to Job in that interview at the end of Job. Job, can you do all the things that I can do? So when I call them, they stand together. Assemble all of you and listen who among them has declared these things. The Lord loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I have spoken, indeed I have called him. I have brought him and he will make his way successful. So who's who's speaking? Who is speaking is somebody who's not God, but also must be God because he is the first, he's the last. Mm -hmm. He'll go on to say that I was sent by God. In verse That's 16, right. I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead on you there, but That's he'll okay. tell us that he's talking ahead. But it, it, what's interesting is verse 13, he's the one that created everything. So who, uh -huh. so this person speaking says, I created everything. I'm the first and the last. I created everything. But then he's going to say, but God look sent at what, me. Yeah, yeah look at what he says in verse 16. Absolutely. No, no, no. Thunder. no, that's fine. No, 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 it's fine. It's 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 not my thunder, it's God's thunder. <laughs> come, come near me to listen to this. For from the first, I have not spoken in secret. So this is what I've been telling you all along. I haven't hidden anything from you. And now the Lord, and that is the Hebrew word Adonai, God has sent me and his spirit. So the one who is Alpha and Omega, the one who created the earth and spreads out the heavens, 
that he has been sent by, and the Hebrew word is Adonai Yahweh, which would be Lord Jehovah is how we would say that in English, using the Latin name uh, Jehovah. So he says, the Lord God has sent me, and who else did he send? His spirit. And the spirit well, of God. And Jesus said, look, God sent me, and I'm going back to him, and then I'm going to send you the spirit of God as a comforter who's going to guide you into all truth, who's going to tell you all the things that you need to know, and he's going to give you the confidence to live in a world that hates you. All those things the Holy Spirit was going to do. Isaiah is saying, look, God the Father, God the Creator, and God the Spirit are all one, that they're united in purpose, but they're individual. Now, today, that would almost seem like heresy to a Jewish yeah. person, but you and I right. were talking about antiquity, and you you mentioned Philo and some of his writings. Now, Philo, I think, wrote in about the third century AD, if that's correct. No, he actually he, he actually wrote before Jesus's time. So, Philo okay, he wrote before a, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, maybe some of the the later full manuscripts we have are from the third and, century, but I, and we have to be three twenty five uh, sticks out in my mind. Philo's not inspired. And there's a lot of yeah. what they call pseudo-philo, which a lot of guys came along and just tacked up stuff onto his writings. Philo is a Jewish uh, man who lives in Alexandria, Egypt. And believe it or not, that makes him Greek, right? That's kind of funny because they're thinking, well, that makes him Egyptian. It's kind of well, like makes Paul. Him Greek. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Roman citizen, he's Jewish, he lives in Tarsus. It doesn't make sense. But what's interesting is that Philo is a great reflection of what people were thinking in the time of Christ. And you and I were talking about the idea that today, if you spoke with somebody who was... Jewish meaning they practiced what we today call Judaism. They would say, oh, God is one, and it's heresy to say anything else. And the oneness contradicts that the Spirit of God is separate or that Jesus could be God. But that's mm -hmm. not what they believed 2,000 years ago. In fact, there's a debate as to say when that belief kind of crystallized. And some people hold it maybe there's something called the Council of Yavna, about 100 and something AD, maybe about 100 years, 80 years after Jesus. And and some people think maybe it starts to crystallize then. Others think maybe it's not as far as until like the, the 1000 AD. And after that, whenever they start saying, hey, Isaiah 53 isn't about a person, well, those kinds of statements, whenever Isaiah 53 mm -hmm. is a really profound statement, they start taking that away. And of course, it's a reaction to Christianity. It's yeah. a why we don't believe in Jesus kind of statement, because Jesus couldn't be God, obviously, because if he is God, we're in trouble. But yeah. Philo is interesting because he represents the idea that this is something that Jews were thinking about before the New Testament even began. They were talking about the idea that God must have, and, and let me kind of quote some things. You can Google Philo's view on God. And Philo yeah. says that God must have an intermediary because God is God. And there's nothing about God that's like man. And yet he points to these times in the Old Testament where God talks to man and God looks like a man and God talks like a man. And he says, hey, how does that work? And he says, well, it must be the idea that there's some matter form of God. And, and guess what? He gives this matter form of God the word logos. He says, let's call this form logos, which is in John chapter one, translated as the word. So mm -hmm. he's saying that this is the word, that, that God has a, a manifested human-like presence called the word. His favorite, I mean, listen to, let me list in his writings what he calls him. He says, he must be the second God. I've got to be careful. That sounds, of course, like he's completely distinct from God. If I don't, doesn't really think that. He says, yeah. he's the archangel. He's the commander of the army of the Lord. He's the name of God. 
And then he gives one that's kind of strange. I don't know where he gets it from the Old Testament, but he calls him the heavenly Adam, which what's neat about that term is that Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 15. Yes, he does. Yes, he but he does. says he is the man, the word of God. And then finally he says the Logos is the true high priest. This is Philo trying to reconcile the fact that after the captivity, their system is broken down. He says he's the true high priest after our exile. So right. he's trying to kind of put something there that's not there. But but all of these things reflect the idea. Let, let's say this. I don't think Philo's right. That's not what's important. It, what matters is Philo is taking the clues he has only from the Old Testament. He doesn't yes. have he doesn't have John in front of him to say I wonder what this guy thinks or he doesn't have Mark. When Philo's writing this, there's not one New Testament document written. Philo might be alive in the time of Christ. We think he died around 50 A.D. So that would be like 20 years after Jesus. So maybe he's heard of Jesus, but he's not writing with Jesus in mind. But yeah. Philo was reaching a conclusion. That isn't going to be revealed to the New Testament, and he's doing it just on the Old Testament. And yeah. no, he's not right. You've got, you've got an uninspired Jewish Greek philosopher yes. who is who's coming to a conclusion that God has interacted with man, and yeah. that in these interactions, he is doing so in a form that man can comprehend, that that speaks in a way that we understand, and that he in Philo is grasping at calling him God because he's not inspired. Philo's not an inspired writer, but he's still, I mean, it's like swinging for the fences and coming away with a bunt. That's baseball terminology, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I needed that. Help. That he, he still is sort of hitting all around the edges of it. Can we jump to my favorite Old Testament passage? By the yeah. way, Isaiah 48 is awesome. The oh, only reason I knew about it was you shared it with me yesterday, and I really hadn't thought much about it before, but uh, I want to use the one we use all the time, okay? And this one is, if I said, if I asked you, what is the verse that most specifically says that Jesus would be God in the Old Testament, which verse would you go to? Now, cut this if we don't agree, but... Uh, there's so there's so many of them. There are a lot. So I'm thinking of Isaiah chapter 9. Yeah. I like yeah, Isaiah that, that, 9. <laughs> yeah. And, and I just... I was thinking Isaiah 7. God uh, Isaiah 7 is great. Yeah, actually, it's funny. But, but I mean, Isaiah that's kind of the same section, 7, it 8, is. and 9, it all is. deal with the Emmanuel and what was going to come out yeah. of Emmanuel. So, yeah. so there, there you have that the that the child is going to be called come, and he's given... Dominican Iyer translation likes to work this, and I think it's talking about four names, the four names of the of the Messiah. Wonderful counselor. Oh, like your four branches. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what's what's neat about this is I I want everybody to imagine, if you're listening to our podcast, I want you to imagine a triangle. And that triangle is made out of four triangles. Now, in other words, if you draw a line across the top half, you got your first triangle. If you draw two arms across the two sides, you can have your second and third triangle. And then in the middle, you'll have your fourth triangle. It's upside down. So to get that sense. So here is the God described here. Here's, here's the Christ described. And he's called All four right. names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, what's neat about that, by the way, how on earth is the Son called Eternal Father? I don't know. So so let's think of this. Each Put each of those side triangles one of those names, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, the third name, Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful okay, Counselor. Okay, just to make sure, I'm I'm kind of drawing a Legend of Zelda Triforce thing in my head, right? So you got the three I triangles with the one right in the middle. Yeah, that's it. So so the idea is that the three triangles frame For all you millennials the out there. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, and, and our Gen X or so so the three triangles frame the interior triangle. It it exists in right. contravence to that. There it's it's created by the space that the three of them. 
such a big word. So oh, yeah, yeah. I probably didn't even use it right. It exists <laughs> in opposition to them. So as they sit this this interior. So these three names are neat because they're pretty generic names for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Eternal Father, right. the Son, the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor. My maybe is the one that gives us the most the most difficulty because is how is the Holy Spirit Wonderful Counselor? Kind of neat, by the way. My opinion. We should have a button that says opinion alert. Something that you can flash in their opinion alert. Need a klaxon alarm here. That's right. My <laughs> opinion is that's who we're meeting whenever Manoah, that's Samson's father in the book of Judges, asks mm -hmm. somebody to show up to teach him how to raise his son. And this person shows up who is who's God, because they say, Hey, we just met who's identified as God, but he calls himself wonderful. He says, My name is and some some way our Bible rendered is it's too wonderful to say, and others will say, My name is wonderful. And I think maybe we're saying the wonderful counselor. Well, what a better description for the Holy Spirit than the great counselor. He's the comforter. He's going to teach you all things. But I just say to say, yeah, we're going to guide him into all truth. Yeah, yeah. We have these three identities of God and they frame the fourth word, which was mighty God, Elohim. There it is again, our Elohim that we met in Genesis chapter one. And so mm -hmm. I'd love to think of this passage to say when the Bible says something like the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, it means that the fullness of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Christ, I actually would even make the case that maybe the name Jehovah is mighty God. Since Jesus says he's Jehovah, a Jehovah yeah. might fit John as the name for all three. Yeah, so that might make sense too. So anyway, I love this passage because how do you get away from Jesus being God when you have Isaiah saying, hey, the Messiah, he'll be God. That's who your Messiah is going to be. How do you escape to know that Jesus was God? Absolutely. That I mean, it's this inescapable conclusion. And you think about you think about how the Hebrew writer draws from that a little bit as he's he's kind of drawing from the Psalms and Isaiah when he's talking about Jesus being humbled and coming in the form of a man, sort of like Paul did in Philippians 2 that put on this mind that was also in Christ. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. I mean, he wasn't detracting from God or stealing from God to say that he was God, but he put on the form of man and coming in the appearance of a man was came in the form of a bondservant. He was obedient even to the point of death and even death on the cross. The Hebrew writer makes a similar thought to that when he says, when he says, what do we see him who was made for a little while this is Hebrews 2 and 9 lower than the angels namely Jesus because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so God's elevated him again to the name above every name so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things that's creator language right yeah in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So here Jesus is our, our brother. That's almost, he's from God, he's our brother. Sort of the prince of peace, if you think of God as the king kind of language. But he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. That's Psalm 22. And again, this is from, let me double check here. I think this is Isaiah 8. It says, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So you have brother-father language, both applying to Jesus in Hebrews 2. When you, when you think about what you just read from Isaiah 9, talking about Jesus as the eternal father, we don't typically associate father language with Jesus, but 
when you say he's the wonderful counselor, he was going to he was going to be the one who guides us. He is mighty God. He is the eternal Father. He is the Prince of Peace. So you have this language here that you see in Isaiah nine, and and more clearly in Isaiah, not more clearly, but more tied to the Hebrews passage in Isaiah eight. There's this reference to Jesus being a father-like figure. We typically think of God the Father as the father-like figure, but the Hebrew writer says, look, you've also got to think of Jesus as the father-like figure, even though he descended from the same father that made you. So there's a lot of evidence here, both in the Old and the New Testament, that supports the idea that Jesus being God is not just a New Testament Christian concept. It was actually the concept of God all along. And you look at writers like Josephus, they made, he made no qualms about saying the Christians believed that Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead on the third day and that he was the anointed one of God. Josephus clearly says this is what first century Christians believe. This is not a new concept about Jesus. Josephus was a a Jewish historian who tended to side a little more with Rome, I think his own people in some cases, but he was recording. These are the things that were going on around Jerusalem. He talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. And now his disciples said he rose from the dead on the third day, or he revived, I think is the word Josephus used there. But this idea of Jesus being God is not a later New Testament concept. It's not associated with the writing of the Gospel of John, which might have been close to the turn of the second century, that it's not associated with any of those things. It has always been the concept of God. Brian, we got to wrap this up and sort of bring this podcast to a close, our first episode. But let me get your final word, and then we'll shut it down. So let's go back to the oldest book in the Bible, which, okay. or at least traditionally. So we think Job might have been written before Genesis. That's mm -hmm. just a guess. We really don't know. Job is lamenting his problem before God. And he says, my big problem is, what do I do to talk to God? He says, and this is Job 9, verse 32. He's not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we could go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on both of us. What I love about what Job was saying is that Job is saying, I wish there was somebody who was equal to God and equal to man, who could put his hand on God as an equal to God and could put his hand on me as an equal to me and say, guys, let's work this out. The Bible talks a lot about the great peace that, that God wanted to reconcile between God and man, that we were enemies with God because of sin, and that it required a mediator who could be equal to God and could be equal to man. And without such a mediator, there could be no salvation. If Jesus isn't God, we're not going to heaven because he can't be a mediator. He can't mediate between God and man, as Paul tells Timothy, the man, Jesus Christ, one mediator. There's no way that he can talk to God as an equal and speak to God and say to the, to the Godhead, to the Father, this needs to happen. If Jesus is not equal to the Father, he cannot do so. If Jesus is not equal to us, as flesh in all ways, he cannot speak to us. Job saw this problem before the Bible was written. Job says, what am I going to do without a mediator, without somebody who can go between God and man? Yeah. If Jesus is a God, we have no hope. That's a great thought. And, and I, I want to end by just saying amen to what you said. But just to reiterate, what Brian and I have talked about this whole episode is Jesus was prophesied to be God and come that God in the flesh in the Old Testament. Jesus said he was God in just so many words. 
in some cases, if you think about how he didn't deny Thomas's confession or Peter's confession, in fact, he even tells Thomas that those who who believe in me are going to make that same confession as you, but they're going to make it without seeing me in the flesh, that even his own enemies, the Roman centurion, and you talked about this in the pre-show, in Matthew 27, he's watching Jesus die on the cross, and he's seeing the earthquake, and he's seeing the darkness, and it says he's fearful. And the conclusion he comes to is, truly, this was the Son of God, that Jesus has always been presented as God. And no amount of human philosophy or false human religion is ever going to change that. So Amen. I want to thank you all for joining us for this very first podcast. I'm glad to have Brian on as my co-host. We're going to get into lots of fun and lots of trouble, I promise. So come back every week. Hey, Brian, next week I talk to ChatGPT. You've, you've heard about ChatGPT, right? Oh, yes, I have. Yes, and I hope our audience will get to learn about it next week. Well, I asked an AI, how can we do a better job of evangelizing? And it gave me some surprisingly good, you might even say scary answers. So we're going to talk about evangelizing in what is typically called a post-Christian society. I can't wait to talk to you about it, buddy. Looking forward to it. All right. To all our audience, we'll catch you next week. This has been Biblically Speaking. We'll talk to you later.